Good evening um, and welcome. My name is Ashling Swain. I'm assistant professor at the Department of Gender Studies here at the London School of Economics. So thank you all for coming. It's lovely to invite you here and to see such a great turnout for um, a speaker that I'll be delighted to introduce to you in just a moment. Um, tonight's event is co-hosted by the Department of Gender Studies and the International Inequalities Institute. And we'd like to thank you all for coming. And um, just to give you an overview of what we're going to do, our guest speaker is going to speak for about 40 to 45 minutes um, and share her work with us. And then we'll open up for questions and answers, which I'll be happy to moderate for you. And of course, when you're thinking of your questions as you're speaking, um, please do remember to introduce yourself when you ask your questions so we can hear a little bit about you in the context of your question. Please be nice. <laughs> I'm sure they will be. No, you can't guarantee so. it. You it's can't true. guarantee it. It's true. Well, <laughs> if they're not, I'm here. Okay. Okay. That's fine. <laughs> so, and so to um, our esteemed speaker, I'm delighted to introduce Akugu Emajulu, who has travelled with us from um, the University of Warwick. Thank you for coming down today and sharing your work with us. Um, Akugu is a professor at the Department of Sociology at the University of Warwick. Previously, she was senior lecturer and the founding program director of the MSc in Social Justice and Community Action at the University of Edinburgh. Before entering academia, she worked in grassroots community, um, grassroots community organizing in the United States and in Britain. As a political sociologist, Akugo's work focuses on two primary areas, um, investigating racial, ethnic, and gender social and economic inequalities in Europe and the United States, and exploring women of colour's grassroots organising and activism for social citizenship and social justice. She has multiple publications, and I direct you to her webpage at the University of Warwick. Um, some fascinating work on there, and she's published with the European Journal of Women's Studies, the Journal of Ethnic and Racial Studies, Children's Geographies, Politics and Gender, among many others. She has a forthcoming book um, in 2019, which is titled To Exist is to Resist, Black Feminism in Europe. Tonight, Akugu is going to speak to us on the topic of crisis politics and the challenge of intersectional solidarity. This work draws from her new co-authored book, Minority, Women and Austerity, Survival and Resistance in France and Britain, which just came out last year, as well as a new project she's embarked on called The Politics of Catastrophe. Her talk addresses the question, how might we transform the ways in which we think about crisis, activism and solidarity? So I'm going to leave it to her to share her work and her findings of this work with us, and I'll invite you to begin. Uh -huh. Thank, Thank you very much. Sure. Sure. Oh, it's super fancy in here. Wow. <laughs> well, firstly, I'd like to thank you guys so much for coming this evening. Because it's 6.30, you have places to be, most likely the pub, and you're here with me. So thank you very much for that. Um, I'd also uh, like to thank the Department of Gender Studies and the International um, Inequalities Institute for the invitation, and a special shout-out to Marsha Henry, um, who invited me to speak. So thank you to all of those groups uh, for this invitation for this evening. Um, so as Aisling said, I'm going to be talking a little bit about crisis politics and intersectional solidarity. Oh, okay, there we go. There we go. You can never see that? Okay, there we go. Um, 
So what I'm going to do is, can you guys see me? I kind of feel like I'm so short that I, like, you can only see like my hair. Is that, can you? All right, okay, that's fine, I'll stop. All right, so I'm going to lean like this, and if you can't see me, tell me. All right, um, so the first thing I'm going to do is just give you a little bit of context to talk a little bit about um, the current catastrophe, but, because I do think what we're experiencing now in Europe um, is a catastrophe um, in three parts. I'm going to talk uh, a little bit about methods because unlike um, advertising, so I'm going to be talking about my co-authored book with Leah Bassel, but then also for um, I'm going to be drawing on some new work with my new project, The Politics of Catastrophe. So you heard it here first. So it's a kind of a two-for-one deal uh, this evening. Um, I'm then going to move on to talk a little bit about solidarity um, and how we might think differently about solidarity work. Uh-oh, here comes a guy. Oh, thank you. Oh, my God, look at this. <laughs> completely transformed. This is amazing, because I was kind of like this. So I was, I'm so tiny. Anyway, this is amazing. This is amazing. Oh, bloody hell. Right. Okay. So I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, solidarity work um, and the concept of solidarity, because I, I don't think we talk enough of that um, when we think about activism. We kind of think this is something we should be doing or are doing, but I think we need to take it seriously in our kind of um, theorizing. Um, and then I'm going to present some, uh, some findings from my project with Leah, the Minority Women's Activism in Tough Times, and then literally hot off the press some new findings from the Politics of Catastrophe project. So I'm going to be talking about this concept of careless and careful solidarity, because I think that is the key if we're serious about trying to make real an idea of intersectional solidarity. So, yes? Makes sense? All right, we're doing this. Whoever that is, thank you. All right. So, so, right, so let's, okay, now it's like the highest highs, now the lowest lows. So what I want to do first is talk a little bit about the current catastrophe. And, it, and as I say, it's a catastrophe in three parts. The first part, of course, is the ongoing, slow-moving um, crisis of capitalism um, as seen in the 2008 economic crisis, as well as the ongoing destructive, destabilizing, counterproductive um, austerity measures that have been instituted across the, across the European Union in particular. Um, but in, for this talk, I'm going to be focusing mostly, um, about, uh, mostly about the United Kingdom. So in terms of the 2008 crisis, what we know is this. The Women's Budget Group in 2017 have just published a really excellent report on minority women and austerity, which is a very nice compliment to the book that Leah and I have written. And what they, and, and what they find is this, that we're seeing 37 billion pound cuts to social security, um, and we're seeing also, importantly, 50% cuts of um, the local government grant. And this is devastating for a number of different reasons, particularly for when we take seriously the experiences of women of color. This is devastating because women of color have a particular relation to the social welfare state. And so when you start cutting the state, you start cutting uh, the lifeline for many women of color. Women of color, as we know, um, are disproportionately impacted by austerity measures because of their caring relations. Uh, women of color are more likely to be working in the caring professions of the state teachers, social workers, social care. And so when you're cutting the state, you're cutting minority women's women of color. I use these terms interchangeably. You can ask me about that in questions. You're, um, you're cutting their employment prospects and destabilizing their income and wealth. 
What we also know is women of color are more likely to be living in the poorest households. And so when you cut the state, what you're also doing is cutting the social, their social um, safety net. And so what we find is this, that women of color oftentimes do not have an alternative. So when you're cutting the NHS, when you're cutting school provision, after-school care, uh, leisure time, all of these things, what we know is that minority women have to take up more caring work, more caring labor, and then this prevents, this um, forms a barrier to their access to public space. And so there's a lot of things happening in terms of austerity, but I want to, and this is the backdrop for things that I'm going to be talking about, but maybe, how, maybe we can turn this idea of care on its head, but we'll go on to talk about that. So the next thing is, the, the next connected uh, crisis or catastrophe is that of the Mediterranean and the Mediterranean crisis. Um, according to the International Organization for Migration for 2017, 2,839 people drowned in the Mediterranean last year. Um, in 2016, that number was 4,150. Um, what we know is this is the EU is absolutely responsible for these, um, these deaths mostly because they have, uh, as an institution, reapportioned budgets away from rescue at sea, away from uh, humanitarian aid, and towards border security. And so what they've done is, con is condemned many people to a watery grave, and that is a catastrophe of, of monumental proportions that, of which we are all complicit. Finally, uh, yet another, so I kind of, yeah, super depressing, sorry guys. Uh, and so, um, and then finally, we have to, of course, talk about the rise and rise of the far right, which is in response to, of course, the 2008 crisis, austerity, and of course, in response to the Mediterranean crisis, but of course, it was always there. And that's what's important about all of these things. Well, through the lens of women of color, we know that these crises have always happened, but they've only now come to public attention. And so this is, you know, now people now care because other folks are being affected besides women of color. So I think that's important to bear in mind. But when we talk about the rise and rise of the far right, just for an example, you know, alternative for Deutschland, the AFD is now the third largest party in the Bundestag. The FPU has joined the government. Actual fascists have joined the government in Austria. Fascinating. But what's interesting is these electoral gains are horrifying in their own right, but I suppose what's more disturbing is if you see here this um, headline from, uh, um, from the VVD, um, this is Mark Rutte's party, he's the prime minister, and of course he famously was able to defeat uh, Keith uh, Wilders in the Dutch um, general election last year. And what we know is, and this is oftentimes what happens, so in place of these electoral gains of the far right, what you see are mainline center-left and center-right parties, co-opting the language of the far right in order to maintain power. And, that's, and that has been the strategy of Mark Rutte. It's been the strategy <laughs> of a number of center-left center and center-right parties across the EU. And so what we know, of course, is this, this legitimizes, it gives sucker to, it activates, and further supports uh, groups on the far right. So even if we haven't seen the kind of electoral gains that were expected in the last year, what we have seen is a, is a, is a big victory in, in terms of victory over discourse and, and political rhetoric, particularly in the criminalization of refugees and asylum seekers. Um, and also, you know, and then giving the ideological cover of saying people can't help being fascist because, you know, there's an economic crisis. And we often ask, well, what about women of color? Don't appear to be voting for Nazis. Hmm. Anyway. 
So in this context, the, in, in the context of the current catastrophe, um, I'm particularly interested in asking this, this question that for some reason doesn't get asked all that often. So maybe we can also talk about that in, question is, in questions is quite simply, how are women of color activists organizing in the context of this catastrophe? Very straightforwardly. How are they being affected by it? But then also, how are they organizing and mobilizing? Because I suppose what's important to note is women of color, of course, not passive actors in this context, we're not passive objects, but of course political agents doing really interesting work. So a bit more context and then we'll get to the good stuff. Um, so as I said, I'm going to be drawing on two projects um, in order to talk about this idea of intersectional solidarity. The first one, uh, the first project is uh, one that's, um, I guess, well completed a couple years ago now, Minority Women's Activism in Tough Times, and this is my project with Leah Bassel, who's at the University of Leicester. And so we undertook um, over the course of three years, and so this data is getting a little old, which is why I wanted to do this new project, um, 85 interviews with women of color activists across three countries, Scotland, England, and France. Um, we also spoke to civil servants, and we spoke to kind of um, practitioners, NGO practitioners as well, but I'm not going to be referring to that data in this talk. And the other uh, project is my new one, The Politics of Catastrophe, which are 50 one-to-one interviews with women of color activists um, in England, the Netherlands, and the United States. And I suppose I just want to say a couple of things about the importance of the comparative element of both, both of these projects. For minority women's activism in tough times, we, Leah and I were really interested in trying to understand how the different citizenship regimes of France and Britain, so this, you know, the, um, the Republican model of citizenship in France and the, the dominance, the dominant ideology of la cité, this idea of secularism, um, and so this idea that you can't use race and religion um, um, as, as, as a politics in public life, we wanted to understand what difference that makes, in, and especially in relation to a more multicultural model of citizenship in the British context. Does it, how does that change or transform women of color's um, political claims to the state and to other citizens? Um, it doesn't really all that much, but that's another story. We'll talk about that another time. Um, in terms of the politics of catastrophe, what I wanted to do for this project is really follow up because there's some un, a lot of unfinished business with the minority women's activism um, project. And so what I wanted to do was follow up, but also to understand in the context of this current crisis, because you see this project, Minority Women's Activism in Tough Times, finished in 2014. This predates many of the catastrophes I was, just, I was just discussing. So I wanted to understand how women of color's organizing and mobilizing has changed in the context of this catastrophe. Make sense? All right, all right, let's do this. You guys are so quiet, I love it. Uh, it's, I mean, I, I, I guess I prefer it. I guess you're just like, this is what we do as an audience. But anyway, okay, I appreciate it. So, <laughs> right, so let's, uh, what's happening? Right, okay. Uh, I, what I wanted to do, so that's some background. Uh, what I wanted to do now is like, let's focus more specifically on issues of solidarity um, and, thinking, and thinking critically about solidarity work in the context of grassroots activism and the context of social movements. And so just as, so we kind of have an idea of what we mean when we're talking about solidarity, we have to, you know, go through a couple of basic definitions, so my apologies. So there are lots of different ways of thinking about solidarity. We can think about social solidarity, which is, uh, you know, part of, you know, that's part of that imagined communities that nation states or ethnic groups uh, build for themselves. You have some sort of tie, some sort of kinship tie, um, some sort of um, 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 effective tie as a result of some shared history or imagined, more likely imagined shared history 
linguistics, uh, link, some sort of uh, linguistic connection. And so this is a way of kind of, sh- of, of building this kind of structure of feeling. That's interesting, but that's not necessarily what I'm interested in today. We also have this idea of civic solidarity, which is about this conferring of rights, the rights and duties of citizenship in a nation state, and you join together, you have that structure of feeling because you have that sense of responsibility and reciprocity to other citizens. But of course, if you're interested in those who have um, have prob- a problematic legal status, how do, can we talk about solidarity in this context? Um, and so if you're serious about making sure that migrant women are part of a conversation about solidarity, then maybe civic solidarity is not the best way of uh, approaching this. And so, of course, I'm particularly interested in this idea of political solidarity, of which Sally Schultz defines as, quote, a moral relation that marks a social movement wherein individuals have committed to positive duties in response to perceived injustice. So the straightforward idea of um, people identifying a shared grievance and feeling some sort of positive moral obligation to act, and so thus undertaking collective action. So that's what I particularly am interested in exploring, um, this idea of political solidarity. And it's really interesting and important, right? Because solidarity has this, political solidarity has this double function. It's how people mobilize, that's how people are galvanized to action, but political solidarity is also the hopeful outcome of action. So it's the reason why people come together, but it's also why people, <laughs> it's also the, 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 the ultimate goal for many activists, is figuring out a way of how can we join together in, in a sense of reciprocity, unity, and have the sustained structure of feeling. But as we know, of course, Political solidarity is not enough, and frankly, it's never been enough. But you know, um, of which we, of which the Women's March in both London and the U.S., frankly, are wonderful examples of the, the, the oftentimes the unsurprising failures of political solidarity. Because what we know is this: in grassroots activism, in social movements, what we know again and again is that women of color, for the most part, are oftentimes um, excluded because of the particular ways political solidarity is, um, is mobilized in these spaces. What we know, so this is you know, probably one of the greatest photos of all time. <laughs> Should probably win a Pulitzer in my view, or something. Uh, one of the greatest photos of all time taken at last year's Women's March in Washington, D.C. This activist, of course, she got a, apparently, you know, she reports, she got a lot of abuse on the march. She's like, you're being divisive. This is a day for all of us to come together with our pussy hats and whatever. And that speaks, that, that speaks volumes. But of course, it's interesting. We've had just had the anniversary of the Women's March, of course, and I'm sure all of you were there at the, the London March. And what's very interesting is the way that we are, the feminist memory of the Women's March is absolutely fascinating because everyone seems to have forgotten the actual genuine debates and problems in the setting up of both of these marches to begin with. So the Women's March in the U.S. famously had all these white women on the original organizing committee who wanted to do a million-woman march on Washington. And people were like, we've already done that. That already happened with the Nation of Islam, like in the 90s. So this is a new. And then also, where are the women of color who are going to be disproportionately affected by Trump's victory, the Trump administration's policies? How can this possibly be? So, of course, the organizers changed up, and now it's this wonderful intersectional sort of space. But it's interesting that... That, that, because for me, that's the most in, interesting and important part of the Women's March, that when the coming together, the organizing of women as women, in that first instance, could not accommodate women of color and other women who 
experience intersectional inequalities. For me, that speaks volumes. And of course, the same problems existed with the Women's March in London. Although the website kind of has this really amazing discussion, we know that in fact the first first round of organizers didn't have much to say about intersectionality, unfortunately. No shade. I'm happy that people did that. But it's, I think that's, this is a prime example of the problems of political solidarity, that it's nowhere near enough. Because what we find is this, that oftentimes what we see is political solidarity is too often a colonizing solidarity, a solidarity that necessitates women of color and other women who experience intersecting inequalities that necessitate their defacement, their effacement, and their subjugation for the sake of some sort of false sense of unity, right? A false sense of we're all in it together. Don't disrupt this false sense of unity. Make sense? All right. Ooh, ooh. I got a yes. <laughs> Proud of myself. So, so we have to move beyond an idea of political solidarity. And the question is, how can we think differently about solidaristic relations? Well, folks have some ideas. So this is um, Fernando Tormos, who's in the US at the moment, and he's defining this idea of intersectional solidarity as this. He says, quote, intersectional, intersectional solidarity is an ongoing process of creating ties and coalition across, oh, that should be social groups. I wanted everyone to see this photo, so I've cut off the L, my bad. So anyway, <laughs> across social group, um, so, social group differences by negotiating, negotiating power asymmetries. And so remember, when we talk about this idea of intersectionality, all that means, of course, is how race, class, gender, sexuality, disability, legal status, how they interact um, and to privilege some groups and disadvantage others. And so when we talk about an idea of um, intersectional solidarity, what we mean is how do you negotiate those very real power differentials between different groups? How do you do that? And so, as I was saying before, you know, political solidarity, or in this case, intersectional solidarity, this is, what, this is the holy grail, right? This is what everyone wants to do, and this is what the hopeful outcome of any kind of uh, collective action. But there's been very little discussion about how we might do this, how, how we might um, enact an inter intersectional solidarity. We see people doing it, we kind of go, that's great, but how have you done that? And why? And how do you sustain that? And so that's what I wanted to kind of explore with you guys in a bit more detail today about how we might actually make this real. Um, and what I'm going to do is first, so this is interesting because it's like a proper, a proper process. So I've been conducting interviews with um, a number of folks as part of these projects, and I've been thinking about what they've been telling me, um, the activist women have been telling me. And so I'm going to put forward kind of um, a theoretical intervention, and then what I'm going to do then is illustrate that with some quotes from activists. So this is so this is what I'm going to do. All right. So I'm of the view, having looked through, done some very interesting analysis of my data to date, and of course this data is um, the data collection for the politics of catastrophe is ongoing. But this is where we are at the moment. It's thinking taking seriously this idea of uh, careful solidarity. Can I just say just very briefly, I really kind of debated about what to call this, because do you remember, I mean, you guys are like super young and I'm like an old woman, but like back in the 90s and like the early 2000s, there was this whole when like post-structuralism had a grip on everyone, everyone would do all these terrible puns with like parentheses and dashes and slashes and stuff. Do you know what I mean? Like renegotiating or like rethink, do you know what I mean? And you. <laughs> And I was like, that's so pretentious. And then now I'm doing this. So I can only just apologize. That's really...
yikes. So anyway, so I, I always thought I would never kind of do this play on words, but here I am. So anyway, so just, just by the way, so I'm, I'm ashamed for myself, so you don't have to ask me about this later. All right, so <laughs> let's then talk about this idea of uh, careful solidarity. So uh, people don't do aphorisms anymore, or whatever, but I'm going to do this. I'm going to say there can be no intersectional solidarity without care work. Um, and I say that as this. Um, I, I, I proclaim that for these reasons. Because if we're serious about somehow recognizing and taking seriously and seeking to actually bridge the power asymmetries between different social groups. And in particular, for my particular interest is about um, women of color, then we have to take seriously this process of care and thinking about care as praxis. So praxis is theory-informed theory -informed action. And so when we talk about this idea of care as praxis, we, we have to think about this idea of care about others and to care about others. And not just this idea of kind of empty empathy that has no action or practice attached to it, but this idea of caring about others and thinking about that as a theoretical framework, thinking about that as a radical political imagination. Because when you care about others, especially the despised other, the disrespected other, the other that is not named as a political agent, the other who can only be a victim, can only be an object, that's some radical work. Because let me tell you, I've been out speaking to these social movement folks and folks are oftentimes thinking only about themselves or people who look like them. And so the idea to, to, to care about others then really requires a transformation in our political imagination that really takes seriously the lived experiences of the most marginalized. I was really, I conducted an interview with um, a group of women and they were talking about how what motivates their action is the starting point is thinking about who works the hardest. And I thought that was really interesting about saying, how do we recognize and put at the center of our politics this idea of who's working the hardest? And it's interesting for lots of reasons, because it, first of all, um, it galvanized, well, first of all, it, um, it makes possible um, a real sense of transnational solidarity work, because firstly, you're like, who works the hardest? Oh, it's women in the global south. That's who's working the hardest, first and foremost. And so how do we think about our politics that puts them at the center? But then also closer to the home, you're saying, who's working the hardest here? Oh, I know. It's undocumented migrants. It's other women of color who are working the hardest under precarious conditions. And so that's really interesting to me. Because what it means is you, through a process of, of this idea of radical care or careful solidarity, what you're, what you're doing is trying to restore humanity to those where um, it's been stripped from them. That's very interesting. I can tell you, folks aren't doing that work. I urge you to go and um, take a closer look at what, um, what genuinely went down in Occupy, right? Where women of color could not find a space in that place. This really important movement that we're still feeling the echoes of, right? We wouldn't be having the, the same kind of conversation about economic inequality without Occupy, right? But Occupy, at the same time, could, was a hostile environment, straight up, for women of color who wanted to take um, an intersectional analysis, um, analysis of uh, the two th 2008 crisis, which I'll go on to show you in a minute. And so in this way, when we think about care, care is not simply this kind of um, despised labor, although it is that, and I'll go on to talk about that. Care can, we can think about care as a freedom dream. That there's, this is a proper intervention in the ways that we think about who is human, who, who gets to be human, who gets conferred the privilege 
of humanity. So it's a way of restoring a disrespected group's um, humanity in this way. So deeply egalitarian, but also radical politics, particularly because folks on the left aren't really, aren't really doing it. And it's very interesting. Many of my um, participants who are doing really interesting work don't actually think of themselves as part of the left, which is, which is fascinating. We'll talk about that. Maybe we can talk about that in questions. So if that's the framework, if, that's the, if, care, is, um, if care is a praxis, and so a praxis has a theoretical framework, then care is also a practice. It's also an action. And for many of the activists I spoke to, we saw it's interesting how care functioned as a form of prefiguration. Care was prefigurative politics. It was really interesting. This idea of caring for others, so this act of, of caring for the little action of seeking to care and protect others, was a way in which was functioned as a politics of refusal, a refusal to be individualistic, right? A, f a refusal to be hyper-competitive, a refusal of everything that tells us that we should be in it for ourselves and to, and to see other groups as less than human, which I think is absolutely fascinating. And so in that way then, and using care in this idea, this idea of care as, pra as praxis and thinking about a solidarity that, that puts at the center who's working the hardest, then you can see that care completely transforms the way that we think about politics because to care for others becomes this act of becoming. You kind of don't know where you're going to get to in the end, but you know you're not staying where you are at the moment. And so care then, hopefully, I'll show you some examples, but there's some pitfalls, so we'll talk about that as well. Um, care become, you know, is, a, is the bridge to create new kinds of political subjectivities, which I think is interesting. So beyond, thinking beyond Citizenship, right? The very narrow idea of citizenship that we practice, right? Care is a way of thinking about agency and thinking about a political identity in a, in a, in a different way. And it makes visible um, disrespected and delegitimized forms of political action. And of course, obviously, this, this isn't particularly new, right? Feminist um, ethics folks, <laughs> feminist ethics folks um, have been talking about this for 40 years, right? But, it's, uh, but what I think what's interesting is that we should be considering how and why this has come back into the political discourse, particularly amongst women of color, which I think is fascinating. But care isn't all that it's cracked up, up, cracked up to be. And here's another terrible play on words, yikes, careless solidarity, apologies. Mm -hmm. um, and so, but what we know is to put care at the center of your politics, to have care as your your political imagination or your political practice is absolutely risky business. This is a dangerous and fragile form of politics that probably shouldn't be enacted uh, <laughs> willy-nilly in many ways. And why is that? Because of all of these reasons um, and all of these folks who tell us so. We know obviously, of course, so I think hopefully this is why the gender studies folks invited me to speak, that we know, of course, that this care is deeply gendered and care is women's work. Care, of course, is devalued and disrespected, and so I don't need to talk to you about that. That is kind of gender theory 101, right? So, but to put, your, uh, to put care at the center of what you do, that's risky business. It really is difficult work. Care also, and this is interesting, all these kind of, the various kind of feminist care folks, not Patricia Hill Collins, to be honest, but the other folks, um, often forget about this other 
the dark side of care, of which Uma Narayan talks about quite eloquently in her very short intervention in the special issue on care, on the ethics of care. She talks about how care is quite easily and too often really does function as a form of colonial relations, that care easily reproduces the relations of domination and subjugation, right? Because oftentimes, because that was in many ways the justification for colonialism to begin with, right? These poor, benighted savages, right, have to be saved from their barbarity. And so they're saved. And so that is a caring relation. It's a horrifying caring relation, but that absolutely was part of the justification of colonialism, right? And so we can't, we have to take seriously these kind of, these careless forms of solidarity. And, and many of the activists I spoke with talked about that, those processes as well. So I'll, I'll get to that. And if I forget, then please be sure to ask me that in questions. And then finally, of course, as we know, as we know, this is also gender theory 101, so I don't need to tell you guys this, but care is also a commodified and exploitative labor process. Of course, you know, Federici <laughs> wrote about this 40, more than 40 years ago. You know, I was just rereading this, Wages Against Housework. I mean, come on. It's so good. I was like, oh, my God. It's so, anyway, more than anything, you're like, I wish I could write like this. Anyway, but it was just, it's so, so if you haven't read it for a while, please go read it. It really is quite fabulous. She's really quite amazing. I hope she's not a jerk, by the way. Is she, does anyone, I hope not. It would really hurt my feelings. Anyway, so you never know with a lot of these, anyway. But as Federico, oh, yikes. I hope she doesn't watch this. Anyway, so, uh, you know, so Federici talked about this, of course. Nancy Fraser has been talking about the crisis of care. And, of course, my girl Leah Basel um, is writing about this at the moment, um, um, particularly in relation to migrant women and the citizenship process. And she documents in great detail. Oh, she's co-writing this with Cameron Kahn, actually. Um, they document in, in great detail how care functions as a barrier to migrant women entering public space. And so care is a double-edged sword. Of course care is a double-edged sword in this regard. And so that's why it's risky business, and this is why it's dangerous and fragile, um, dangerous and fragile work. That's something that we have to absolutely bear in mind, of which the women of color themselves recognize that and somehow plow on regardless, which is very interesting. So I promised that I would show you what all of this looks like actually in practice with some quotes. So I'm, I'm very excited. So let me show you this. All right. So the first thing I'm going to do is show you two quotes about how careless solidarity operates. None of this should be, as there are people in the room who've seen me present my other data before, so there's people in the room who've seen this quote like a billion times, so my apologies. But it's a really great example of how people experience careless solidarity, but I also think it's very familiar. So this is something we probably, if you know, if you've done any work on women of color, uh, on or about women of color's experiences, you know that none of this is, it at all new, but somehow oh, the story always needs to be told again, which is, says, which I think says something quite important. Anyway, so this is what careless solidarity looks like. So solidarity that is colonial, that insists on subjugation, that there's no form of, um, I, I, you know, there's 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 no form of unity in this way. So. This is from a black British anti-austerity activist in London from a couple of years ago now. So she says this, and she's talking about a very large, very famous, very influential group, um, anti-austerity group, that was set up in response to that first wave of austerity measures that the then David Cameron's first 
<laughs> there are so many governments. Anyway, <laughs> the, 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 the first conservative, uh, um, David Cameron's government. So she says this, quote, just because it's an anti-cuts movement doesn't mean to say that there's not racism with, within it. You have to explain and spell it out to white activists. Now, these are supposed to be people that are supposed to understand what true equality means and what oppression is. But the reality is they don't really understand it. And so this was a pattern in the work I did with Leah and um, for our book. This was a pattern that we saw across all of our cases in Scotland, England, and France. I'm going to show you a Scottish quote in a minute. That in order for women of color to exist in these class-based socialist politics, um, left populist politics, was that they had to undergo a process of self-effacement. That if they wanted to exist in the space, they had to strip themselves of their, of their gender and their race, and they could only exist in the space as these kind of de-race, de-gendered, class-based things. What's that? I'm getting to it, honey. Don't you? Oh, and hello. We're going to talk later. There's a whole thing. That's Alex, by the way. But anyway, we're going to talk about it. Um, we'll talk about it. Don't worry. So, but it does matter, right? So it is a bind. So as Alex says, it is, it, there is a bind here about do you have to always perform your blackness? But we have to also understand, are we in a hostile environment where surely you should be able to put forward an intersectional analysis, an, uh, analysis of who is disproportionately disadvantaged under austerity. That should be taken for granted, and yet it's treated as bad politics. You're splitting the movement, because remember, we're all the 99%. Remember? You're like, meh. <laughs> and so this really matters. So this is what careless solidarity looks like. So this is what a colonizing solidarity looks like. You can be here, but you need to shut up about your gender, you need to shut up about your race. All right, let me give you another example. Which is, and also, if you, know, if you do this work, you know this is totally unsurprising. So here's another example. And I, use, and I, I love the Scottish, well, I hate it, but I love the Scottish example because, you know, in Scotland, and I was in Scotland for 15 years. I miss it, though, by the way. England is a trip. Anyway, but, um, but in Scotland, you have to deal with this unbelievably stifling discourse of every, this is this radical, socialist, egalitarian paradise. And, we're, and it's like this because we're not England. And I was like, that bar is so low. Do you know what I mean? And so I was like, so, thanks. That's nice. I feel like I should be, like, this is like stand-up. Anyway, all right. Okay. I feel like I should have a drink or something. Like wine or something? Yeah, sorry. All right, okay. I apologize. Oh, God, the Scottish Nationalists. See, the Scottish Nationalists are leaving. Right, okay. So, I'm joking, I'm joking. Um, so... So this West African migrant rights activist says this about the supposedly egalitarian space of Scotland, supposedly the space that's better than England. She says this, quote, ethnic minority groups are trying to drive in their humble way different causes, but how do you link with the local people, the indigenous people, i.e. white Scots, white folks? It's almost impossible. You don't seem to find an avenue to join in when people are doing their thing, so you somehow find yourself on the sidelines all the time. Even if you did your thing, you won't be able to attract them, white Scots, to come with you because it's so segregated. So even in the supposed paradise of if not socialism, then certainly social democracy in Scotland, that there can't be, there doesn't seem to be a space to accommodate those who are working the hardest, but also those who are most vulnerable in this particular anti-cuts movement, which I think shows a failure of political imagination. 
but also like understanding who your opponents are. Your opponents are not just on the right, they're also on the left. I think it's important that we understand that and take that seriously. All right, so you probably shouldn't, you're probably not surprised that this is the experience of careless uh, solidarity and this is the experience of women of color in these spaces. So let me show you what careful solidarity looks like. And these, all of these interviews were conducted like in December of 2017 and January 2018. So this is hot off the press. You are the first people to hear this. So good for you. All right. <laughs> so this is, so this is how we do careful solidarity. And by, and then also how we do intersectional solidarity. So this is a British Asian anti-deportations activist. And so she does a number of different things alongside this also does some very interesting kind of anti-police violence work as well. So she talks about this. What is central to basically how I frame all my politics is I know the things I do are because I have the sense of having care for the people around me. I know I'm conditioned in a particular way because I am a woman of color. And at this point, she starts to kind of hesitate because she knows she's like, am I reproducing the gender binary? Am I falling into the trap of this is not revolutionary politics because I'm doing exactly what's expected of me because I'm a woman of color and I'm supposed to care about other people? She says this. My start, and this is where her hesitation comes in. My starting point isn't like studying Marxism or whatever, but I have a compulsion to, it's like weird, like total mothering sense of like wanting to protect people, right? But then how does that feed into sharing radical politics and looking after each other and making sure that, um, that we can continue to undo the power of state institutions? So it's one of those things where, like, look, folks, we can talk about, in theory, oh, care politics, it's reactionary, it reinforces the gender binary, it reinforces the old sexual division of labor, blah, blah. We can say all that, but in fact, the activists themselves understand that and say, no, you know what? Actually, in spite of all that, or despite all that, it's still the foundation of my politics and not some empty Marxist theory, which is perfectly delightful, by the way. Wonderful. But... For, for, for this activist, there was something else going on, and that focus then, that radical politics, to be able to get to the same place. I guess for me that's what's interesting is we still get to the same place of saying we have to undo the power of state institutions. We still get to the same place, but the foundation is completely different about thinking about this idea of the protection of others and so a different kind of political imagination to restore the humanity of others. And in this case, um, migrant women who had been detained so here's another example, which is very, very interesting. So this is um, mixed race anti-austerity activist. Um, and so she's friends with the woman I was telling you about, who was talking about we, our, our starting point is this idea of who's working the hardest. So they kind of, they, they, they work together. So she says this, quote, we're completely autonomous. So she's talking about her organization, the need to be able to work um, independently and about the focus and the importance of black women's self-determination and agency and all the rest of it. So that's something that's really, really important to her and to her organization. She says, we're completely autonomous, but we have to look out, um, look to where our points of reference have got the experience over many decades of how you work collectively, how you work in a way that does not undermine anybody else's struggle but in fact does everything possible to bring struggles together in a principled way and in a way that is not about personal ambition, but it's about a complete ambition for us all, a whole movement. Which I was like, oh my God. <laughs> I was like, this is gold. No, I was like, this is, you know when you're in those interviews and you're like, yes, got it. Without prompting, I was like, oh my God. Anyway, sorry. Um, so 
not only is this like really inspiring, obviously, but also it, it shows you this is so this is another way of thinking about careful solidarity. The first example is about that deep one-to-one connection with people, right? That structure of feeling that need to protect and to care for. This is another way of thinking about solidarity and this the way in which how you how you link up other people's struggles. So literally doing intersectional solidarity, literally doing intersectionality of saying we have to connect with each other and we can't work in ways, we can't work autonomously in ways that undermine other people's politics, which we literally have seen in the wake of austerity. We literally have seen another way of doing this, which absolutely undermines and delegitimizes other people's politics. So this is another way of thinking about careful solidarity and doing the work. Okay, finally, so this is a long quote, but it's absolutely bananas, as in bananas isn't good. And so, um, I use bananas in both, it's really, anyway. But this, it's so good. I actually think, I think I had like goosebumps when uh, this woman was talking to me. So this, is, so this is a woman who does a lot of work around prison abolition. Um, and so this is what she has to say about doing um, careful solidarity, but also by its very nature then um, intersectional solidarity. She says this, quote, at the end of the day, what I'm really interested in is creating an alternative social reality. The pressing force of white supremacist misogynistic capitalism does not give you the space to breathe. And I felt like we took this building and we barricaded the shit out of it and we created a different place. And it was beautiful. So many of us who were really instrumental in the occupation, when we, when we go to the pub, we all say it, say it like it saved our lives and it changed our lives because we've got a glimmer of what it would be like to live otherwise in a world that isn't this world. And that was beautiful. And I was like, are you kidding me? Are you, what is happening right now? Like, honestly, I, I just thought that was like, I was like, oh my God, this is amazing. Anyway, uh, <laughs> and so you see it here, right? And so this is the hopeful outcome, right? So this is the prefigurative politics. So you see it in every level. So you have one person doing that one-to-one intensive work about protection and care. You have the other um, activists talking about how do you link up struggles? How do you connect struggles? How do you actually do that work? And then you have this person who's done that work in terms of this occupation, and there were some problems. Make sure to ask me a question about some of the problems, because it's fascinating, about how careful and careless uh, solidarity interact simultaneously in a single space. What you saw is living the new world now in the process of this occupation, which I thought was absolutely fascinating. Um, but puts at its heart. Oh, right, okay. I thought you were like, finish up, woman. Right, okay. So, <laughs> no, sorry. No, it's fine. It's fine. Okay. Um, but puts at its heart this idea of careful solidarity. And I, you know, and I suppose I should say, but I, because maybe that was too implicit in each of these examples, but you know, um, each of these activists were doing some really interesting solidarity work that crossed legal status, that crossed gender identity, that crossed. Um, that crossed uh, uh, racial lines and, and, and ethnic lines, and what links them all together is this idea of putting care and protection at its heart. So, I'm going to finish up. Last slide. Um, to talk about this idea of, if it's possible for us to talk about an idea of radical care. As we know, women of color are on the invisible front line of resistance. Women of color are doing this work, but what's oftentimes, more often than not, not in the spaces that get recognized and the work is not seen as valuable. And many, and I think for each of those quotes, I think every one of those women do not see what they do as part of the so-called left. And were very hostile to the idea of the left because those weren't spaces that they thought they belonged and those weren't spaces where they thought they could um, survive and thrive. 
And so for me, if we're interested in thinking about creative resistance, about um, how people are doing really interesting work, we have to think again about the usual frameworks that govern our ideas of solidarity and solidaristic bonds. Um, and for at least some feminist activists, the idea of intersectional solidarity is central to creating a new political imagination. But what I argue is we, you can't get there without putting care for others and restoring the humanity of despised and disrespected groups. You can't get there without doing that work. And that's the bind. That's the irony. Because that work will always, always be disrespected, will always be despised, and always be seen as gendered, frankly. So what do you do? Maybe we can talk about that. And so in this way, care can be radical. But it's, as I say, it's risky business. It's precarious labor. Um, but it can be a radical act. Thank you very much. Oh, thanks. Thanks very much. Cheers. Thank you. Wow. That was phenomenal. Thank you very much. Thanks. Yeah, no, wow. Lots of... Um, Lots of thoughts, and I'm sure many of you have lots of questions and comments, um, and we have an opportunity now. We have just over half an hour um, to engage in some discussion and debate with Hukugo. So I invite you to um, nominate your questions. I may take a few at once if, um, if we have a couple of people with some, and if you wouldn't mind identifying yourself and let us know who you are as you engage um, with us. So we have someone just there in the middle. Yeah, We're going to bring a mic to you, so if you want to just hold on for one second. Thank you. Just make sure we can hear you. Hi. Um, that was beautiful. Uh, my name is Sophia. Um, I'm from the States, New York specifically, and I've worked in community organizing for about six years now, and um, specifically in the nonprofit field, but also outside of it. And I'm thinking in terms of intersectionality within my work, um, between struggles, one of the biggest challenges, I think, came down to political education, a shared political education. And I'm wondering, um, within the framework of care, what is the importance of political education? And it doesn't have to be, as one of the um, activists describes, like her, her work didn't start in Marxism, right? Um, I'm not even thinking necessarily of political leaders or who we thought in terms of ideology, um, political ideology, these leaders and thought. Um, but I'm thinking in a shared understanding, what is the importance in having that shared understanding between struggles so that um, our intersectionality is uh, maintainable, that we're able to come back to something and say, this is, this is what we agreed were our shared understandings. I um, mm. hope that made sense. Thank you. Can I take a couple? Yeah, sure. If there are. Are there others? There's one just here on the left-hand side. Hi. Can you hear me? Oh, uh, uh, my name's Shelley. I am doing the Gender Development Globalization Masters here at LSE. Um, I was really interested in your whole idea of care, empathy, and um, extending humanity. Um, and I wondered if you had thoughts on how far that humanity should extend. Uh, you specifically said seeing other groups as less than human. And I'd be the first to admit I see the... Um, white supremacist Trump supporters and I get very angry and perhaps I see them as less than human and I wondered if you thought that that care should extend to those groups and if so how would you approach that and, and do you think it can work? Great, thank you. Any further, we maybe we go with those? Yeah, all yeah. right. 
Okay. Over to you. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, thank you for your question, and yay, North American. Woo. Uh, <laughs> that's terrible. Yeah. So it's, I'm so embarrassed. See, that's that civic solidarity. You know what I mean? And who cares? I care for some. Anyway, I'm sorry. Because everyone I meet is Canadian, and I'm like I miss Americans sometimes. Anyway, okay, I'll, I'll stop. <laughs> You're like answer the question. Um, so, what is the role of political education? Well, I guess. Do you know, I often think when we ask, when we have these questions, that kind of the feminists of the second wave kind of already kind of sorted a lot of this stuff out. We kind of keep forgetting and have to remember, and I guess maybe have to fail and then remember going, oh, right, 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 even though they were wrong about a lot of stuff, but that's another story. Um, that what we know is political education and this idea of shared understanding is through dialogue and consensus building, frankly. I mean, there's nothing fancy about it. Um, for I, every single one of those activists that I quoted in terms of careful solidarity, all of them were part of a process of um, non-hierarchical collectives, well, one of them, well, sort of, non-hierarchical collectives where decision-making was made by the group, not led by a charismatic leader, that you, the... <laughs> Uh, this political scientist, American political scientist called Francesca Paletta, has a great book called Freedom is an Endless Meeting, about <laughs> which is the best name of a book ever. Uh, because, and it's all about the process of um, consensus-based decision-making. And so freedom is an endless meeting because you can't, you can't leave the room. The meeting doesn't end until you talk it out. And so in the importance of deliberation. And, but I guess I'm a big fan, and this so, also sort of speaks to the question about, you know, what about the Nazis? Which I never thought I'd be asked, to be honest, but that's another thing. <laughs> what about the Nazis? What, did I, what about the Nazis? Anyway, um, that I'm a big fan of saying you can't have a conversation with everyone. I'm very relaxed about being cool with having enemies and opponents. I'm very happy. And this moment is very clarifying for that. We're like, well... We know where you stand. And so I, I guess I was, I was asked this um, previously about how do you convince people and all the rest of it. Some people, their politics is about not being convinced, right? And so I'm a big fan of just saying, that's fine. I'll put you in the category of my opponent, and then we can move on. So I'm, and so it's not like you can't have disagreements, but I'm not going to debate basic humanity. That's a, so I'm a big fan of going, oh, well, and keep it pushing. So, so for those who are willing to come to the table, then you can have some really great, and they should be disastrous, they should be tear-filled, they should be anger, uh, you know, uh, they should be angry, they should be some difficult conversations, right? But that's for people who genuinely, who are operating in good faith. And so I think that's at least part of when we think about um, shared understanding, political education, dialogue and deliberation. We're kind of, the current crisis, I probably should have mentioned that, the current crisis is also a crisis of bad faith. That people are doing all, saying all the right things, but you know, you can't actually convince them because they're not operating in, in, a, in a place of honesty or whatever. So that's at least part of what's, what's going on. So the political education is the old-fashioned, you gotta talk it out. But also understanding there's a limit to talk and say, Keep it moving. Yeah. And that's, it's a, that's a tough kind of politics, but it's better in the long run. Is that all right? Okay. Keep it moving. 
Right, okay, the other question is, I don't know why I'm looking at you. you like, I don't know, it's like, give it a moment, Ashwin. Yeah, it's this question about how far should, the, should humanity extend? What about the white supremacists? What about the Nazis? I mean, <laughs> but, well, I mean, but am I wrong, though? Right. I wondered if I was, you know, being a bad person by not extending my feelings of care. Um, do they deserve it? Should we try? Why would you love your oppressor? Like, why would you love your oppressor? That's some crazy business. Like, that's honestly, these people are your opponents. Like, I, I mean, I, it's one of those things where <laughs> the problem is too much humanity. Do you, know, do you know what I mean? The problem, like, no, there, no one is at risk. What, of loving everyone? Oh, well, <laughs> over to you, Ashley. No, damn. I'm not speaking tonight. I'm just sharing. <laughs> the Irish question Let's rears its head there. again. Good. Well, goodness. This is the things took a left. Right. Um, so, no, for me, this is, for me, that's the wrong question. For me, it's, it's absolutely the wrong question about because you're not seeking because you're not seeking to dehumanize anyone, and by seeking to humanize a despised group, like humanity is not a zero sum game, right? That you take humanity from another group. I wouldn't even approach it in those terms. The question I would approach it purely on ideological and political terms of like this is literally my opponent. This enemy wishes me dead, and so the question is how do I defeat? my opponent. So it's not about kind of those kinds. And I, I, I suppose I should say, you, you, you may well have noticed, and there might be a question, I hope there isn't a question, but you may well have noticed there, I haven't talked about effective relations and emotions and bleh. so it's like, I, that's not anything I'm particularly, in, and so I'm sorry if you guys are in, but I'm not really interested in that. And so I, because I think that they oftentimes ask the wrong questions because this isn't about how I feel about the Nazis. This is about what the Nazis do and how they must be stopped. Does that make sense? Okay, thanks. Okay. Oh, oh, thanks. Wow. That's nice. Yeah. Right. Well, moving on. Is that what you said? You're moving on. Keep it moving. Keep it moving. Keeping it moving. We have um, a question here and a question there and a question over here. So we take those three, please. So let's wait for the mic to come through. Great. This is the longest pass down ever. I know. Hello, my name is Simon. I'm from South Africa. Uh, just moved here as a doctor and going to be studying at LSE next year. So my question, well, in South Africa about five years ago, we had a, a roads must fall movement that became a fees must fall movement. Mm. And in that movement, initially we saw what I would say as an intersectional movement at the beginning. And as it progressed, it became more progressively, I would say, less intersectional and more violent and aggressive and patriarchal. Mm-hmm. And my question pretty much boils down to how do you maintain an intersectional movement when often the most, when the loudest and most aggressive voices get heard first? Because it's, I think, trying to convince people to understand uh, or to look at, look at it through the prism of care uh, becomes difficult when at the end of the day you want an outcome and, and uh, the aggressiveness becomes the, the main aspect in, in the movement. Mm. Great, thank you. If you Great could pass question. the mic. And maybe we'll just go to Ajay. Be- oh, we're going back. That's fine. Whichever is. There we go. 
Thank you so much for a, a fabulous talk. Um, my name is Susie Hall. I teach at the LSE. I'm in the Department of Sociology. And I wondered if we could bring um, some of your questions into the space of the academy and the kind of peculiar contradictions that we face every day in practicing a politics of care here. Um, I think this is a, a place where one can extend um, some of these ambitions uh, into the life of teaching and into the world of research, but we also work in an incredibly racist and patriarchal institution. Um, and I don't think that's uh, specific to the LSE, I think it's specific to tertiary education across the UK. So how do you, how do you manage these contradictions and how do you find, how do you straddle the politics of, of possibility on the one hand and these kind of walls on the other hand? Thank, Thank you. you. And we'll just pass the mic this direction just over to Edge. Thank you. Thank you very much for your talk. It was really inspiring. Uh, I have some questions in my mind for a long time. Uh, I have been here in Britain during the Brexit uh, discussions and a uh, very poor part of the working class in Britain uh, believed that uh, immigrants are stealing their jobs. And during that time period, British left has addressed this question by talking heavily talking about ethics without addressing the workings of capitalism, maybe at material level. So we were heavily listening to, we have listened to the discussions based on ethics, the difficulties of about migra being immigrant in Britain and such and such, but those people were not convinced because they didn't see the role of employers or the level of wages, why production is moving. So when I read the Arnie Horschel's book about Tea Party in Britain, mm -hmm. in the United States, also she's explaining a little bit the roles of economic and material uh, factors uh, in the manipulation of those people and making them more racist. And I was wondering if this inter intersectional care uh, ideas can include or should include some sort of uh, materiality, the role, role of capitalism, the, the workings of capitalism and uh, some effort of convincing people. Great. Thank you. Over to you. Yeah. Okay. So this question here about roads must fall, fees, fees must fall, started off as intersectional and then became more patriarchal, exclusionary, violent, and the rest of it. What do we do? How do you maintain intersectional politics? Well, I'll say this, and this is something I hadn't expected from the field work, but I guess when I think about, when we look at the history of social movements, this is, looks like this is the case, that perhaps we shouldn't be surprised about what happened with fees must fall, roads must fall, because when you look at other prefigurative spaces, we see similar things. The best example, I was just teaching about this on Tuesday, so it's in the front of my mind, is to chart the history of what happened to the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. Started off as this prefigurative space, you know, pioneered and supported by Ella Baker, bringing together black students, black and white students, um, to fight for civil rights in, in the South, in the 60s. Started off in 1960, these amazing politics, voter registration, spectacular protest in order to deal with um, public empathy, white 
American public empathy for civil rights, as well as organizing through voter registration. By 1968, eight years later, SNCC had collapsed and collapsed under the, the weight of the rising black power movement. Um, <laughs> the uh, white students had been expelled from, this, from that um, group. And many of the women in that space famously, you know, uh, they put out a position paper, what is the position of women in SNCC? And, and the famous reply was prone. And so you kind of go, what? <laughs> and so... I mean, there's a, there's a longer story to tell about SNCC, but that seems to be pretty emblematic of what happens to these kinds of prefigurative spaces, that they can't be sustained. Um, and I'll give you an example. So, I, so this, this is a way of, for me to tell you about how careless and careful solidarity interact in the same space. So in the last quote from uh, the prison abolitionist activist who talked about we were part of this occupation, we were able to live otherwise, and it was all amazing. At the very same time, there were all these problems reported to me by multiple people as part of that occupation about the problem of revolutionary white women in that space. That when they were in the space, <laughs> it was quite interesting actually, which is, which is interesting to me, that what happened was that when they were in the space, kind of women of color were doing the menial labor in the space, cleaning, doing all this stuff, and kind of like the revolutionary white women in the space were kind of like doing the media stuff, doing all the cool, playing with the kids, but not cleaning up after the kids, doing all this other stuff. And so people were like, huh, that seems strange in this revolutionary space. How is that possible? And how, can it, how is it possible that those two acts can interact in the same place? So this is very helpful to me, so thank you for that. I don't know if this answers your question, but <laughs> it's helpful to me in thinking that maybe these can only be ephemeral, temporary, fragile politics. That social movements disintegrate anyway when they get institutionalized or key activists burn out. And maybe this is part of the process of this, that that kind of way of working to resist those structures that govern us, that to have the charismatic leader, to resist a conversation about dialogue and sustaining this. I don't, it, it's not clear when you look at kind of the history of social movements whether it's even possible to maintain this after a couple of years. Is that helpful? Yeah. So like kind of depressing, but yikes, yikes. So yeah, that's so. Hmm. Well, all right. So there's a question about what do we do in HE? God, woof, Lord. So I too, uh, <laughs> Jesus be offense. Um, so I too am at a. Russell Group University and was previously at a Russell Group University where everything about being in the university is, who asked, there you go, everything about being in the university, in a, especially one of these highfalutin fancy universities, is that you're in it for yourself. You must be out for yourself. Everything tells you you should do that. And alas, <laughs> my experience in many of these places has also been that those who proclaim their amazing politics, so the, the many socialists and feminists I've worked with have been some of the worst colleagues, alas, because like uh, grasping personal ambition, mass, you know, feminism, mass, awful, terrible politics. So I'm doing this as a feminist. You're doing it to get ahead. Just, and I prefer if they owned it, frankly. And then we could all be clear about what was going on. Anyway, that's so, so that's at least part of the problem because in these spaces, 
teaching is devalued, caring about students is devalued, the only thing that matters is publishing, the only thing that matters is getting that big grant so you can be bought out so you never have to interact with anybody but other fancy people. So, yeah, that, I mean, this is the, and you, I was actually just um, teasing Aisling on the, <laughs> on the walk over here. I was like, oh, yes, the LSE, because there are all these photos up going, students are our number one priority because of your TEF result. And I was like, ha, ha. <laughs> so, she did that. Yeah. I, did, I literally did that. But I also kind of shared, so I, this is terrible, people are going to watch this, but I also shared because I thought, just to be honest, some important information that, you know, Edinburgh, where I was previously, boycotted the TEF because out of some, supposedly some moral reasons, but they also knew they would also get terrible results. So they're like, we're not participating because this is a bad way to measure something. <laughs> so don't be fooled. Others who did not, and then poor Warwick got like a silver or a bronze or something, so we're terrible. Anyway, how do you manage the contradiction? How you manage the contradiction is to... <laughs> is to take every opportunity not to be a bastard. And so part of that is about saying, and so how do you do that? Part of that is about saying, what, what is going on with your teaching fellows in your department who are there to be worked to death and are there, <laughs> who are there to, <laughs> and, and, and their careers wither on the vine and they're more likely to be women and more likely to be women of color. So part of the job is saying, where are, what's going on with your teaching fellows? and about saying how do you protect them, and part of how you protect them is acknowledging they exist, acknowledging that they, they do most of the horrible, horrible labor, but they, you know, teaching these first year hundreds of students and then having people complain, oh, I don't miss that. But I do love teaching, by the way. Anyway, so, but knowing that that's hard work and there's no space to do anything else, right? And so part of the job is how are you doing, checking in, acknowledging they exist, acknowledging they're working the hardest. So who is working the hardest here? And also taking the opportunity to work with them, saying, can I publish with you? Can I read your manuscripts? Can I, can I put you on a grant? Can I do something? And it won't work all the time because, I, boy, have I been screwed. I was like, oh, you're terrible too. Oh, that sucks. But I guess I'd probably, I mean, but maybe it's me. So that's also the thing. It's like, it's, but it's probably me. But anyway, um, so, but I'd rather be disappointed, if that makes sense, and th then kind of be out for myself. I find it very upsetting, to be honest, to be so cutthroat. I can be, but need be. and also that's, but that doesn't mean you're, you're not a pushover, because it's also, you could be nice to people, but also say, don't mess with me. So it's about trying to walk that line. So for me, that's at least partly about saying, how are you looking after those who are working the hardest? Is that helpful? All right. Um, Okay, so, and I was wondering, I was going to, it's the countdown, so what about the Nazis? So here is the, what about class? Where is the class in this? Where is the, every time I present this, there's always a question about class. Um, so to do intersectionality is not to dismiss class, but to insist that you can't talk about class without also talking about race and gender. So these things are inextricably linked. And I guess I don't, I, what I don't get is, and I get your question, but what I don't understand is, why is it so difficult to understand that I refuse to talk about class without talking about race and gender? Because I don't understand, because, and also, the, the, what are the material politics? Literally, my projects are about anti-austerity movements. How more material politics can you talk about than literally the cut to the social welfare budget of which women of color are the hardest hit? 
Those are class politics, but they're class politics that put at the center the people who are hit hardest. And I don't understand why that is somehow could never be seen as true class politics, or never be seen as within the existence of understanding. Oh, I just I don't get it. And I just and it's it's not you, it's me, because I get every time I present this, I get asked a question about where's the class in this, and I was like, you're not paying attention. Because, and I, I, would just, I would just ask everyone to just go and read the Combi River Collective Statement. S- lesbian, socialists, black feminists who say very clearly, we have to understand capitalism and we have to understand white supremacy and we have to understand patriarchy. You don't have to choose. So you can do the whole, why not both? So I guess that's what I would say. I was like, no, I'm, I'm doing that work and the activists I'm working with are absolutely concerned about the material conditions. That's, I love that, the material conditions. That's, they're absolutely concerned about the material conditions, which is why they think about care as a process of survival. So, yes, that's, that's all I have to say. Sorry. Thank you. Okay, so we have um, just about 15 minutes left, so maybe one last round of questions. We have a question here at the back to the left, a question here in the centre. Yeah, oh, hi, my name's Helen Starr. I work in um, art and technology, where I am always the only person of colour, often the only woman. And I'm wondering if you ever thought of looking at this area as well. Art and technology. Uh, how technology is shaping the world. Oh, yeah. Um, uh, a specific example is it's impossible to find an avatar of a woman who doesn't walk in a sexy way. Mm. <laughs> Great. <laughs> um, we have one just here. You got the mic. Great. Thank you. Um, my question is about the kind of things around sustaining these caring practices. And I was wondering if any of the activists you spoke to had managed to create a kind of sustenance out of their work. They have, they care through their work, but they also care for the other people who also care. So, like, there are those two out of 500 who are invested in not dehumanizing others. And those three people together take care of each other outside of the direct political work. Mm. Great. And then we just have one down the road from you. Yeah, and we'll take... A fourth after you, and then that so, will be it. So my, my, qu- my question comes from a position of complete ig- ignorance, so I apologise for that. Um, I just wanted to um, ask you whether you thought that uh, by focusing on uh, the colour of people's skin, um, it might, uh, that might create problems as society changes. So, for example, recently we've seen how... Um, uh, educational attainment amongst uh, white people is no, 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 no. Let him ask, ask a question. Education, no, no, do your thing. Educational attainment amongst white, um, white working class people in in England is actually at the bottom of the scale. And so, if 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 that, so if you focus on trying to organise collective action, solidarity, uh, and and focus on uh, skin colour, isn't that actually going to create a problem in the future as society moves underneath you? Thank you. Thank you. And just here. Thank you. Last question for you. 
Thank you for that really amazing talk. So I do have a couple of questions, but I want to ask the first question, um, building on the question which was asked in academia. Um, and my question particularly is about how to build intersectional solidarity when the most dispossessed of academic institutions are often women of color uh, who might be in sort of non-permanent jobs say, hourly paid staff, and in, in a sense, even when there are strike actions, how do we sort of respond, and how do we sort of make it a practice of intersectional solidarity, right? So I, I was wondering if oh, um, your thoughts on that. Mm. Um, and secondly, in terms of when you identified the intersection, sort of the positionality within, say, race, class, gender, um, citizenship regimes, which I thought was amazing, but I also thought, um, in, in terms of your work, have you identified particular migration regimes, which sort of sits, I think, to me, it sits before citizenship, right? So in a sense, that there is forced temporariness, uh, which is built by the state, and that dispossesses women of color um, disproportionately, um, and that cuts across skilled migrants to low-skilled migrants. Mm. And so I wanted to know, in terms of, um, you know, sort of practical ways of solidarity in that sort of scenarios when there is a fuzzy area of privilege, uh, but there is this dispossession. Um, um, if there's space for one more question. Uh, <laughs> like, we we yeah. only have 10 minutes left. I just yeah. wanted to know, can there be solidarity if there's a disconnect between civic and political solidarity? Oh, my God. Well, these are <laughs> I said no hard questions. Oh, my God. Right, okay. Wait, okay. I, I can talk to you later, but I just <laughs> wanted to know. Thank you. Okay, so we have 10 minutes. Yeah. Okay. With that... Civic, social, you're killing me. Right, okay. So, so, all right. Um, oh, the role of technology. Um, so I actually wrote a paper, haha, about... <laughs> I'm such a jerk. Right, I actually, I wrote a paper um, called Towards a Radical Digital Citizenship, um, which I can send to you. It might be free online somewhere, but I'll, I'll, I'll release it release the hounds, um, in which I talk a little bit, but this isn't my area, but it's because the people I was down the hall from. So this is why you speak to your other people. It's like people I happen to be down the hall from at Edinburgh were interested in this, and then I somehow got interested in it. Um, and in that paper, so it's been, it's been a year, so I don't quite remember it, but in that paper we talk about the importance of thinking about how we can't think about technology as neutral and we have to think about the politics of technology. And we talk a bit about the algorithms of oppression. That's from um, another colleague's work where she talks about um, a lot of these problems of in the de-raced, de-gendered, de-class space of Silicon Valley, they are literally shaping how we interact with each other. And, you know, the best examples are, you know, when you used to do a Google search image for black women and pictures of gorillas would come up and all the rest of it because uh, the engineers <laughs> are not thinking about politics at the very, the most charitable view of that. Although that dude at, who was fired from Google, you're like, hmm, maybe they are, they are thinking about politics. So it's not really my area, and there's I've been threatening to follow up with those characters for, like, a special issue around this stuff, and so watch the space. We'll talk. Oh, I love that. We need to talk. And I was like, yes. All right, we'll do this. All right. Um, how to create a kind of sustenance in terms of care and protection, where and how? All right, okay, that's a terrible way of talking about your question. But So for every single one of those activists that I've quoted here today, they all talked about, oh, especially one of the activists who's really interesting, she was talking about how 
she has to, in order for her to be able to carry on with really depressing work, right, of, you know, when you're doing anti-detention, anti-deportation stuff, this is the worst, but also the, you know, really the most important, it kind of gets to your point about this other kind of crossing boundaries in that way, that she's like, the only way that I cannot burn out is by taking seriously the, these intimate relationships that I have with my fellow activists. That's the only way to kind of get through this. And, you know, and that's kind of unsurprising, right? When you speak to any kind of activists and social movements, it's those kind of personal relationships that sustain you. Um, and so, yeah, so I think that's, that's a fairly straightforward thing that you see in any kind of activist space. Um, and I think it's a great... And what, what, what she did say, which also, I think, speaks to this gentleman's question, she's like, I was... She's like, I used to be less tolerant of kind of kind of white lefty dudes who kind of didn't get it. But kind of now I'm like, people who want to come in good faith, I'm willing to spend more time with. And so she's, and so she's like, this has been a bit of learning for me, which I thought was very interesting. So to your question about why focus on skin color, I think it's important because I think we need to, you know, say it straight. That, so when we talk about race, race is not skin color. Race is a process. Well, so one, so the better question, the better way of talking about this is how one is racialized, right? So uh, to be racialized is a process, and skin color, hair texture, has nothing to do with it. It's about a process of being subjected. That's what we, so when we talk about race, that's what we mean when we talk about that. So skin color isn't really the main thing here. It's about who is marginalized, and oftentimes that corresponds to skin color. But of course, the experience of East European migrants shows us something that's beyond skin color, right? So that's also very important. But then, so, and if you really wanted to get into it, it's interesting. Whenever I kind of present this work in Eastern, I'm coming back to Eastern and Central Europe, no one wants to talk about those hierarchies of whiteness, which is really the name of the game is like folks are white, and then they migrate here and they lose their white status. Fascinating. Anyway, um, so. The question is, what about white people? For one of the activists that I was speaking with, she was very, very clear about saying, we work with everyone, because guess what? When you let people, when you let the state institute a policy of destitution for migrants, they're coming for you next. Migrants are always, always, always the experiment to see what the state can get away with. Tony Benn said this. Years ago, right? And we see that now. When there was a policy of destitution, people were like, yep, they don't belong here anyway. Guess what? There's a policy of destitution, which the Department of Work and Pensions is policy. Disability allowance, they literally had to. (laughs) The government is not fighting the court case because they got it wrong. That's literally a policy of destitution. So the question is not about where the, what about white people? The question is, how are we working together? Because whether people like it or not, we're all in this together, one way or another. The only people who are not in it together are the 1%, and a couple of other folks, which include a whole group of people. But that's, so the better question is not, what about the white folks? The question is, when are they coming for you next? Because they're coming. So, um, uh, so, Ooh. Oh, so I want to just, there's only, haha, I don't have to answer all these questions. So there's only four, <laughs> so there's only four minutes left. And so I, I, I think it is important to come back to this question about what, what about intersectional solidarity in higher education and the upcoming strike. 
So this strike is going to be 14 days? Look, I can't afford not to work for 14 days. I might be a big fancy professor, but I need my paycheck. What are you talking about? So, like, so we're, and I think this is fair enough that absolutely UCU has to do better in terms of that. Where is the strike fund? So I was reading um, online that, um, so other people who have gotten in touch, especially about living wage struggles in London, have said that you have, if you're going to go all out, and you, we should be going all out for pensions, because remember, they're coming for you next. Like, literally, everyone's like, oh, they've closed all these final salary pension schemes for retail workers. Guess what? They're, this is us coming. It's happening literally right now. So the strike action must happen. It should happen. I'm not looking forward to working until I'm 80. Looking fabulous. I'm working until I'm 80. Um, but we know that we have to have a policy of at least saying you can't cross a picket line. But we, what we can do is say strike on your teaching days, but don't strike on your non-teaching days because folks got to eat. I think that's a more than fabulous policy. And branches have to get, and I need to get more involved in my ward branch. Oh, there's so much to do. So I'm sitting here as a hypocrite. But branches have to get it together, right, and institute local strike funds in order to protect the most precarious workers. I think that's absolutely what has to happen. And UCU has been traditionally very bad at this, weirdly. Not weirdly. We know why. But anyway, that's another question. So, um, One minute left. Oh, can, okay, so I'm going to say this thing about migration regimes. So this isn't my area as such, and I would refer you to my wonderful colleague, Leah Bassel, who's literally doing this work, like literally doing this. So I would just, so I'm going to pass that. That's a hot potato. I'm going to pass that to her, <laughs> which I'm sure she'll thank me for. Um, and uh, can there, what is it, no, there's no solidarity without civic and social, what, what? Um, I was thinking, <coughs> when you identify new sections solidarity, does it mean that there should be civic solidarity and political connection? Okay. Like, should there be a link between those? Like, for example, I'm particularly thinking about groups who could be marginalised, who could be precarious in society, say, raising conduct, migrants to the country, who will have civic rights, essentially no political rights. So how do we bridge... Okay, so for those who didn't hear, she was talking about what is the relationship between civic and political solidarity for those who are able to benefit from uh, civic solidarity through um, having citizenship rights. What is then the relationship of building solidarity for those who who do not, in particular, particular kinds of migrants? Is that correct? Well, I mean, I don't think we have to overthink this. This is a process of your struggle is my struggle. And this is, and, but, it's, it's, uh, but it's also not as simple as that because one of my respondents talked about how even though many women of color obviously benefit from citizenship rights, they will be treated more harshly once they come into contact with the state. And so this idea of, um, and so part of what she does in terms of her activism, this is why this kind of this invisible form of activism, right? Because she can't afford to get arrested. And then, because, we, because who knows what's going to happen to her, right? When she goes into police custody. What, hap- what will happen to her? So she can't, you know, so there are lots of things that she can't afford to do, which is also about your struggle is my struggle, about saying, that's why we need white folks who have to put their bodies on the line in that regard, who will be treated differently 
straight up, will absolutely be treated differently. And so this is part of how you practice it, about saying people will experience state violence very differently whether or not they have citizenship rights or not. And so the question is, how do you protect each other? Like in this way, this kind of corporeal, is that the, is that the word? All right, I'm proud of myself. Uh, so this kind of corporeal kind of justice or solidarity. Yeah? All right. Sure. Yeah. Great. Woo. Okay. <laughs> wow. Thank you. <laughs> so, oh, that's nice. You stood up. That's very nice. Well, thank you so much um, for coming and sharing your work with us. Thank you to all of you for coming and all the great questions as well. So good night and have a nice evening. Cheers. Thank you.